My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Check me out at dismantle.life. Email me at anthony at dismantle.life anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts and let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery. I listened to a couple of your podcasts and they were, they were great, man. I think one with Ashley, I really get shocked with shit I hear in recovery, you know, as you probably do also. It's like, we think we've pretty much either lived it all or heard it all and said some things that resonated with me as did a couple of the other ones, but I was like, fuck, I listened to, I listened to stories of recovery, man. It just reaffirms that this is where I'm supposed to be. This is my tribe, you know? No doubt, man. I started the podcast to help others uh, just to either find, stay on, or get back on the path of recovery. It helps and, you just as much. Dude, it helps me more and I feel bad about it sometimes. Like I'm like, <laughs> I want to be giving more than I'm getting out of this. And somehow God has flipped the script on me and I get so much out of it in a wonderful way. Not not in a selfish way, but it sometimes I have to check myself and like, should I be what else could I give kind of thing? And, and it's, it's been great. I mean, it, I, I've learned so much from the guests that have been on the show, man. And people like you have been so fucking cool about coming out and sharing their stories, dude. Like I've got 44 episodes in the can that I, I every week I roll out a new episode. I took a, I, I went every other week for just a couple of weeks. I had some other stuff going on in my life. I, I couldn't get some stuff done, but people have been so cool about sharing their stories, dude. It's been fucking great. I mean, really, really good. It's awesome. I mean, you know, that's, that's what they tell you in early recovery and all throughout, you know, share your experience, strength and hope you do this for others as much as you do for yourself. You know, if one person gets, but it's all true. You know, I used to laugh at all the cliches and early. I'm like, fuck you. Show up your fucking sober ass, you know, all that stuff. But it's just all fucking true. You know, when you experience the joy and the happiness, it, it, uh, it's, it's, I, I totally get it. It's truly amazing, man. And I, I love it. And it's been, it's been wonderful. I've, I've met some really cool people and they've, and I've had some stories some, from some of the guests that have kind of made me sh- shiver a little bit, like uh, some real shit, man. And, and people don't realize, and I always say this, that I really think that people that are in recovery have superpowers, man. We are all superheroes in our own way uh, because people don't know the fight that we fought, you know, and are, and are winning. I mean, you never have won. You're always fighting the fight, so you're always winning. But uh, it's cool, man. I mean, I got to tell you, dude. Like, I'm pretty. I wear it with the badge of honor now. I, at first, there's that pang of being ashamed at the beginning, you know, like 
what the hell did I do to myself? But when you get when you're going through it, bro, it's it it's real and it's great. Yeah, it, it is. I listen to your story too, man. From locking yourself in a room with three packs of cigarettes, fucking eight ball, and fucking two balls of fucking. I think you said did you say brandy or you vodka. You were brandy. You said brandy. Uh, uh, well, I was telamore uh, telamore oh, whiskey yeah. and and vodka. Yeah, those were those were my things. And you're right. I would I would shutter myself in, bro, and fucking rampage an eight ball. A fucking bottle of whiskey, a twelve pack or a case of beer, and three packs of cigarettes. You know, and that would—that's what I would do for the whole fucking day and night. I mean, and then some. It was crazy, man. I mean, I went to some dark places, man. And you start building that narrative in your head. At least I did. That fuck the world, and this is fucking bullshit, and this is all happening to me, and all that other crap that comes along with it, man. I <laughs> damn near died, man. I mean, I literally—you—you you heard? I mean, I barely fucking made it. The doctors from other hospitals other surgeons were coming to see me because they could not believe the depth of my infection in terms of how how widespread in by percentage of whatever they calculate an infection rank to be they, they were coming to they're like we can't believe that you're alive like this is crazy and I, somehow somehow i made it I, I i don't know and that's the day i went in the hospital was the the last day i did any of that cigarettes drinking or smoke uh or so smoking, drinking, or doing blow, and I haven't touched it since. And so for me, I had to hit rock bottom pretty fucking hard, man. And I did. Yeah, it, it was crazy. And and here I am with awesome people like you sharing our stories to help other people, which is where we should be. And I think it happened for that. What I love about that is that was your rock bottom, but you still had a wife and kids, <laughs> you know? So yeah. Everybody's rock bottom is so different. And that's it's all to be completely respected. But uh, I love when, you know, I love hearing about people's rock bottoms because I love that every rock bottom isn't the same. You know, and I, I love when I hear yeah. those people tell me their rock bottom was just a bad hangover when they're 22. Fuck yeah. Like, I'm glad that's right. Rock bottom. <laughs> no doubt, man. No, no doubt. Um, obviously, so I, Go ahead. I'm so grateful that you came on. And I know I kind of hit you up on Insta in, in the re so. Thank you for responding so 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 quickly and coming on the show. And I'm I'm a fan of your Instagram post because I think that there's some life in those man that I dig, and and that's what attracted me to them. And and I and I love it, man. And I love what you're doing with uh, Valor Fitness Apparel and your your Sober AF brand in Valor Fitness, which is fucking cool, man. I mean, I, I dig what you're doing, man. This is great. Yeah, you know. I- <laughs> In addiction, we have balls. In recovery, we have balls. So I'm like, why not make a fucking fitness clothing line and throw a fucking sober AF shirt on a piece of workout clothing and rock it to the gym in fucking LA? Like, I don't give a fuck. That's right. <laughs> you know, just be proud. People wear whatever they wear to be proud of. And if you're proud of something, you rock it. Like, I'm proud to be sober. And it's like, it's different. I love that. We'll probably get into this in the podcast. So I'll just shut up. And I'm dying to hear your story, bro, because what we talked about a little bit on our intro call was fascinating to me. And I know... Um, you've got a hell of a story and I've got, I want to do, I do want to circle back around to some cool Instagram posts of some of my faves. Um, and the, one of my favorite ones, by the way, is when you're, first of all, the one on Skid Row, I think is fucking cool as shit when you're, you're passing out bananas, oranges, and water to the folks in the morning. And a lot of people that might be listening might think Skid Row's a band. It's, it's actually not. It, it, yeah. I mean, it is, but, it is. It, it, but it's uh it's a place. I mean, it's for, for homeless folks. And then your Topo Chico, post is pretty bomb too man when you're when you're sipping the bottle of uh, sparkling water yeah and uh this is for all the friends that have abandoned me and I, I i gotta tell you man i think that's pretty cool shit yeah you know I, I didn't mean that one in a negative way just like you know i know i really know that a lot of my friends when i got sober you know they stopped texting and they stopped calling because they knew that they still had you know that 
you know, maybe they didn't suffer from addiction and God bless them, but they wanted to go out and party and they wanted to go out and drink and they respected me enough to not invite me to these things to kind of cut me out. So that was kind of a, a positive cheers. I know it could have gotten like taken differently, but it was, it was, it was, it was a very, it was meant to be a very kind and um, real post saying, you know, thank you to those people because they re actually respect me enough not to try to put me in a situation where I might, you know, have a weak moment and, and drink and fucking God knows what. <laughs> I love that angle too. And I think people that are listening to this that are, you know, that's a hard choice that people have to make is to take a hard left turn on your old life into your new one. And some friends are going to go away for a while, but they'll come back around if they're really your friends, which, which is a big deal, man. So it's true. When I, when I first got sober, I, um, you know, I went through, I don't even think I had Instagram at the time. It was 2016. I think I had Facebook and I was never even active on Facebook. You know, I was all I cared about was drinking and how I was going to get that next drink for 10 years. So, but I did. I went through and I, I deleted everybody that wasn't recovery based to me. And uh, I had a lot of, I had, not a lot. I had, a, I had some friends reach out and be like, "What the fuck?" So I made a post about it. Like, hey, I just deleted. Boom. Some people were like, "What the fuck?" I thought we were friends. I'm like, "No, we weren't. Like, you're cool, but we were just we're fucking drinking and drugging buddies." Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, exactly. But you got to, man. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta take this thing seriously if you're gonna do it. Well, let's dive in, man. I'd love to maybe start if you're cool with that. Maybe, and I call it pre-addiction, not from the medical perspective, but just a place to kind of lay some foundation of maybe who you were before you dove into or got into the drinking and drugging at, at deeper levels, man. So a little bit about kind of pre-addiction, if you will, and then we'll kind of just go right through it. Yeah, of course. Um, first of all, I'm 44. So, you know, some of your viewers might not relate to anything we say because I'm going to be talking about pre-cell phones. <laughs> I'm going to be talking about pre-playstations. <laughs> There's none of that shit back there. No texting, none of that bullshit, yeah. We had two cans and a string, you know? <laughs> if you wanted to get a hold of somebody, you had to, they had to be home at the landline you were dialing at that time. Yeah, remember when you actually made plans to meet someone at a particular time at a particular yeah. place and they yeah, had to be there? Yeah, yeah. And if they weren't there, they it was you just you didn't you didn't connect and that there was, was it. No GPS. You had to like have routes written out on a piece of paper before you left because there's no cell phone to just Google directions or there's no ways or MapQuest, you know? Shit, I don't I don't mean if we could survive the eighties and seventies, and that's when I was a kid, pre that we could fucking survive COVID. You know, no I, shit, I dude. No doubt, man. I remember, not to get too sidetracked here, but just a funny story. I, I, so my stepdad, biker guy, awesome dude, has a pickup truck. And we used to go, my cousins and I, in the back of the pickup truck without seatbelts on the highway doing 75, 80 miles an hour just in the back of a pickup truck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And didn't think shit of it. Drove by the cops, oh. waved at the cops. Nobody gave a shit. That's how we grew up, man. And, and we put seats this. in the back of trucks. We put little little chairs and cut the legs off, you know, so it was just it was <laughs> the bottom of the chair until so you'd have a cushion back to sit so your your back didn't hit the the you know the level on the bed, the little the little yeah, comes out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, dude. There was no there was that's how that's just how you did it. Or my, my dad used to put me on his lap to drive to the grocery store for Christ's sake. You know, yeah. he was probably drunk at the time too. Yeah. I was, I was in the passenger seat of my, of my mom or dad's car, no seatbelt on, listening to eight tracks and they were drinking a beer and smoking cigarettes. Like there was no seatbelt. It's like, what was the, and it, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but you know, and I always love it. This COVID time. I'm like, dude, I, as a kid, I ate gum off the street. Like COVID's not going to get me. I'm a, I'm immune to this shit. You know, I used to drink out of public water fountains at the parks in Chicago. It doesn't going to bother me, man. What are you drinking? Bring it on. Like, you want the cure? Live in the eighties. <laughs> You're immune to this shit. That is kidding. great. For no, sure. But, uh, 
you know, me and my story is as much about mental health as it is about addiction, which I think they go hand in hand as obviously, you know, many of us are well aware of. So, um, um, my story is, like I said, in the eighties, I was, a, I was a young kid. I was raised by a single mom. You know, my mom had me very young. She was 15 years old when she had me, uh, her and her dad, my dad, I'm sorry, had been together for a short amount of time. Uh, he was like a year older, so 16. I was obviously a complete accident. So, um, they had me and, um, I guess my mom made my dad marry her after I was born because on the paperwork, she put me, I found this out in my twenties when I was trying to get a birth certificate, but she named me as her maiden name. And my dad was pissed. And she's like, if you're not going to marry me, my son's not, you know, Jim, me, I'm not getting his last name. So he married her at her house just so they could change the papers. So my last name could be his name. And then they divorced like a month later or something like that, (laughs) like whatever. But the great thing about listening to stories and podcasts and other people, people sharing is that there's not much different about us. You know, there's not much that I'm going to say that's going to probably nothing that I'm people are going to, that are listening to this and be like, Oh my God, like, wow, I can't fathom that. You know, we've heard it. So many people have experienced it. You know, whatever I talk about when I'm talking about it, that happened to me, you or the listener is going to be putting themselves in that situation of, Oh my God, that happened to me also. And it's going to be bringing back memories to them. So, you know, that's one thing I've learned about the rooms is that's why I'm so comfortable in these rooms is because we get one another. You know what I mean? We understand we've, we've been there, we've learned it. And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, probably especially in the late stages of my active addiction, that other people did go through the shit I went through and they knew what I was feeling when I was lost, helpless, uh, homeless, like miserable, like, other people had been there. It blew my mind when I first realized that and I heard it and I believed it. But, you know, I was raised by a single mom and my, my dad was never really around. He was 20, 15 miles away, but he was just, you know, he was young also. And, um, you know, my mom uh, never graduated high school. She worked a bunch of jobs, uh, did the best she could for me. My mom is a great woman. Um, she tried, tried, tried. But, you know, she was 15 years old, She's 16 years old. You know, when I hit my early, you know, started going to school, you know, at five, six, seven years old, however you are, you know, she's hitting her twenties, like tw- turning twenty years old. Right. So, you know, as any person that age, they also want to go out and party. They want to, you know, get love and affection. They want, you know, my mom was single, so she obviously wanted, you know, a man in her life. Not only for her, but in retrospect, I really know that she wanted a man in her life for me as well to give me like a father figure. So, you know, I can look back now. And I can see that and I can totally appreciate it and I can understand it. You know, as a kid, you don't really get it, but you know, that's what it was. But you know, my, my early childhood was, was as is no different than lots of people in, in this listening to this in, in the rooms of recovery. You know, I believe that probably 90% of addicts, maybe 95% of addicts in recovery, you know, something happened to us as a child, some kind of abuse, whether it's mental, physical, you know, sexual, all the above, that's just the reality of it in our lives. And, and that is what it is. And me talking to more people about it and learning that this is not so uncommon is what makes me more comfortable to be able to, to you know, speak about what happened to me as, as, a, as a young child. And so, you know, through doing that more and more, you get more comfortable with it and you take the power back from the people that did these things to you. So, you know, I think recovery and mental health and for me, eventually overcoming my addiction to where I'm at now is being comfortable talking about things, being confident talking about things. And taking power away from the things that really destroyed your life for so long, mentally, subconsciously, because, you know, the subconscious mind is so powerful, way more powerful than the, power, than the conscious mind. And that's what gets to a lot of us and led to, to our addiction. Well, me. So, so, you know, my mom had lots of men around and, you know, 
these men did things to me. So it is what it is. Them and their sons did things to me. And when you're a little kid, you know, you don't know what's going on is bad. You trust adults. You're trusting. You're naive. You just think, you know, oh, you're an adult. Okay. Yeah, this must be okay. So, you know, and then for me, when I got to like junior high, high school, you know, 13, 14 years old, you then realize the things that happened to you, like that wasn't right. That wasn't normal. First of all, I don't know. <laughs> All of our normals are different, so I don't like the word normal. Yeah. Whenever I say normal, I'm talking about my normal, which is way different than your normal, which is way different than her normal, yeah. than his normal. So, But, you know, you realize that the things that happened to you, that wasn't right, and it was fucked up. <clears throat> and now, you know, for me at that time, which is not any different probably from a lot of people that are listening, uh, when you're 13, 14, you realize this shit happened to you and it's not right, you're too ashamed of it. You're too embarrassed. You don't want to talk about it. You just you bottle it up and you push it in. You know, and that's what I did. I just... I bottled it up. I never forgot, which is where the subconscious and the mental health aspect comes in. You never forget and you get embarrassed. You think it was your fault. There's something you should have done, you know, when that's not the reality at all. But um, that has to do with a lot of the mental health aspect, which, you know, led to a lot of my drinking. I never really, you know, my, my childhood, you know, I was a happy go lucky kid. My mom was never around. She worked three jobs. You know, I would often, you know, come home from school. I wake up in the morning and she was gone to work. Uh, I come home from school and she had gone, gotten home and gone to job two. You know, she wasn't home at night after I went to bed. So uh, for me, uh, isolation and being alone was a lot of my childhood. I have a half brother and half sister. My dad remarried and I have siblings on them, but, you know, they were never around. So for me, I was home a lot alone. And all my close friends, they, you know, they lived in two parent households and they had siblings. So my childhood was a lot different in the aspect of, you know, I was always alone trying to reach out. But a lot of times, you know, I was just it, it was what it was. And it was, that was my normal, you know, going to sleep by myself, making myself do my homework. My mom had you know, very little money. So as, as a young kid, if I wanted to do anything, if I wanted to play youth basketball, youth baseball, if I wanted to go to the movies with friends, you know, I was big into baseball cards. If I wanted to buy baseball cards, you know, back in the 80s, we would go to warehouse music and make our own cassette tapes, you know. But if I wanted to do any of that, I had to pay for it by myself. So I got a paper out, you know, in third grade. So I think you're eight years old, nine years old. Um, I got a paper out and I always had paper outs. Uh, I had them for five years until my freshman year in high school. So from third grade to ninth grade, um, I had paper outs. If I wanted to do anything on my own, I had to pay for it. So, you know, I was always working. I was always out doing that. And back then, you know, people don't know about, know about paper outs anymore, but that's when you, you put those bags on your bike and you go around and you're throwing them a doorstep to doorstep. And, and, you know, the paper out was seven days a week. There was no days off, you know, and it's, it's, it's early in the morning. So I had to be up at six o'clock in the morning every day out delivering papers in the dark. And mind you, I, I, I grew up in Ventura, California, which isn't a bad area, but they have bad areas. And my paper out was over by the, um, the train tracks. So, you know, I'd be out at six o'clock in the morning when it's pitch black and I was scared. I'm not gonna lie. I was scared. You know, that's what I and, you know, any kid at 6 a.m., you know, you're working, it's dark. I totally get that, man. And, so, you know, I never had a paper out. Some friends of mine did. And I, I remember being there a few days, helping them fold the papers and rubber band them. So, And then if they're raining out, you have to put them in those little plastic bags so you can fill the papers without getting them sopped. So, yeah, man, I, I get it, dude. And you work through that. And so where does it kind of go? Where does it go off the rails on you, man? Like, when, when do you start, like, drinking? I mean, do you start pick, pick up a drink in eighth grade? Because I started drinking pretty heavily in about eighth grade, <laughs> sad to say. I think the first time I ever drank was probably probably maybe maybe my freshman year. Um, I, oh. I probably had a beer or something with my dad and my uncle. was like, oh, whatever, on the weekends when I went to visit him, when I did go to visit him. But um, probably the, my first time drinking was my freshman year, and it was um, 
just probably I think it was like old English. It was beer. It was disgusting. Oh, <laughs> no, and, then I, and then I didn't really drink again for a long time. The first time I really started getting into drinking was probably my sophomore year. I had moved from Ventura up to San Luis Obispo. And uh, the first time drinking for me was an absolute nightmare. I think all the first times were absolute nightmares, which just blows my mind how, you know, we let something we, we didn't even like just absolutely destroy our lives and consume it. But, you know, it was, you know, my early alcohol was peppermint schnapps and orange juice. And as soon as I got to where alcohol was, I would just chug, 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 boom. I wanted to get as drunk as fast as I possibly could. Yeah. And then it just comes to blackout and throwing up. But honestly, in, like in high school and early college, I played sports. I was a, I was a big athlete. Uh, I even played sports in college. You know, I played, you know, high school and college. I played baseball and football. So I didn't drink a lot in those early ages. I did probably normal with everybody else. But I'm telling you, once a college sports stops is when I just went fucking buck wild because you know the things that happened to me as a child those had never gone away you know yeah. i had gone through from you know whatever time, age they happened to now i'm in 21 22 when i really started hitting the bottle and those had never gone away i had just pushed them away you know but they were never gone so those 10 11 years i'm just bottling this stuff up and my mental health is just getting fucked because trust me there's not a second that goes by that i'm not angry about that i was a really angry young drunk because i had just pushed that stuff so i stopped playing sports and i'm in my early 20s and i live in san Luis Obispo. i have decent jobs i'm making great money and i'm just raging every fucking night you know my insecurities are are just going you know i was always in good shape i've always been in fit i've always worked out a lot um, never really had problems with, with the ladies. I mean, we all have problems, but <laughs> so many women, sure. not to disrespect <laughs> whatsoever, but it's like, um, my insecurities, which were massive. I tried to offset them by getting my body to look a certain way, thinking that if I got the girl, the one hottie, the gorgeous girl, then I'd love myself. Cause look, you know, I, I was trying to get things to, to, to justify myself or to, you know, give myself, you know, self-worth. And that just, obviously it's an inside job. So I was working out to get myself to look a certain way, thinking I'd love myself. I was like drinking, partying like crazy. If I got the girl, you know, I had, I definitely had FOMO, fear of missing out, man. I heard you talking about you go out and drink by yourself all the time. Like I would go, I had no problem drinking by myself, going out to a bar by myself. I had no problem. Cause I was, I had, I had definite fear of missing out. I didn't want to. I wanted to be involved. And I turned into an every everyday drinker in my early 20s. You know, in my early yeah. 30s, I turned to a 24-7 drinker where I heard you talk about, you know, you'd wake up at 5 o'clock and go have to make sure you had a line of Coke before your family woke up to be able to function. In my early yeah. 30s, like, I would just have, wake up and I'd have to reach over and grab that cup that was next to wherever I passed out that was still half full of my vodka soda just so I wouldn't shake terribly. And be able to even get up, you know. So, uh, you know, my 20s were just a fucking disaster. I was a raging alcoholic. I had I turned into a raging alcoholic. Uh, just based on all of these insecurities. I, I had three in my life. I've had three long-term relationships, which are like five years or more. They all started up based on alcohol. They all were dependent on alcohol. We drank together. We probably met in a bar or something. Uh, every fight was alcohol. Everything was alcohol. And so... But it was this thing that just caused so much fucking chaos in my life, but I couldn't live without it. You know, it just had me mind, body, and soul. It just, you know, I, mean, I think I heard Ashley refer to it multiple times, cunning, powerful, and baffling. I use that all the time in rooms of recovery. But, you know, my addiction just started getting worse and worse and worse. And then um, <clears throat> in my in my, um, in my my mid-30s, I think I, I, I bought a house in San Diego. I lost it. I lost my car. Uh, I started getting to the point where I just – I was I had been an everyday drinker 24 – 24 hour drinker for five years. I've been an everyday drinker since early twenties. Yeah. I lost my house in, in a car in, in, in San Diego. I moved to LA 
And the LA lifestyle just really fucking sucked me in, man. I just like the first time I ever did cocaine was in Los Angeles, probably in like 2014. I'd never really I'd done a lot of ecstasy in my younger years, but I was pretty much just an alcoholic. I was just a raging fucking lunatic alcoholic, vodka, vodka soda. I never really liked beer, never really liked alcohol at all. So I had to, you know, mask the flavor of it with the with the mixer until Fireball, and then Fireball was just my shit. Like I could just drink a fucking bottle of that. But uh, you know, I was a <laughs> handle. I was the big handle of vodka, at least one a day plus a twelve pack. You know, and then whatever I may have had at a bar, I'd go through. You know, if you open my garage door, <laughs> if you open my garage door, man, my neighbors would would joke because they'd be like, "Dude, are you fucking sponsored by Sky Vodka?" Because all we see is bottles, the big ones, and then yeah. the fucking Ducati or Modelo. Like, are you sponsored by alcohol brands? Because <laughs> I was I was embarrassed to open my garage door if my neighbors were outside because literally. All they would see was blue sky vodka because that yeah. was, was always on sale at my local market. You could buy the big handle, the big one for like $16.99. Anyways. So I used to do the same thing with uh, on recycling day. I would bring out the recycling and it was literally top to bottom full, all three bins with beer bottles, vodka bottles, and whiskey bottles, empty cigarette packs, et cetera. And I, what I would try to do is on top of that, put the cereal boxes and other recycling so it didn't look yeah, so it didn't look like people driving by would go, what the fuck? But they knew, right? I mean, even you could just hear when they would dump the bins, just the clash and crack of bottles. <laughs> it was nuts, man. It was, it, but yeah, it's, I get what you mean with that. It just piles up because you, you outpace the, uh, the recycling bins. It's once a week. Yeah, fuck that. I would, trust me, I would fill up the back of my SUV and I would take it and dump it behind like bonds and shit like that. I would do that because yeah. that, that cycling day was just not fast enough. But, you know, to be honest, in my, in my early addiction, I think I think lots of us, if we want to be honest with ourselves, we have multiple addictions, you know, dual addictions. And I don't think I'm any different. I think my second one was definitely sex. I think I was a, a big time sex addict. That's why, you know, I would always need a girl. You know, I, I was insecure by myself. I think I was very codependent. You know, from in your subconscious mind is powerful. My mom, as a young person, as a young parent, always had guys around. So that's kind of what I saw. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think you really take on what you see every day. You know, you really oftentimes we say, you know, we see something in our parents as a kid. And we're like, I never want to fucking be like that. I never want to be like that. And then we end up being just fucking like that. So your subconscious mind is just so powerful. So I always just felt like I needed a female around. And if I didn't have a girlfriend, I was going to a bar and I was coming home with one. And uh, so I think sex was definitely a, my second addiction um, early yeah. on. And I, I, trust me, as I'm saying this, I bet lots of people are nodding their heads right now too. But, you know, I moved to LA in 2014 and I got a good job. <clears throat> I lost a house in the car. I got another car. Got a good job, but uh, I never could really get an apartment because my credit was shot. And so uh, I got an apartment for a little bit of time and same with friends. But I had a good job, but I was making good money. I was, mind you, I was bartending. But uh, I was blowing it every night. You know, I'd make four or five hundred bucks a night, but fucking, I would, at the end of the week, I didn't have nothing to show for it because, you know, I would just fucking party it, drink it, whatever. And, you know, obviously, yeah. you know, I lost a fucking house in a car. I'm, my life's going on the rails. I can't manage money. So that's when, that's when homelessness kicked in with me. I became homeless in the streets of LA uh, probably around 2014, uh, 2015, actually. And lots of people didn't know it. You know, I hit it. You know, I, 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 I had a storage unit. Uh, that I would keep stuff in, what little I had left. You know, I would live out of my car, my SUV. I would, you know, I would sleep in that. People wouldn't know. I would couch surf here. I would stay with girls I was dating. Uh, I would take showers at Gold's Gym, you know, if I needed to. And I kind of, you know, for, for two years, I, I think I maybe had an apartment, a place to live, a real place to live for a couple months. But in 2015, it got bad. I lost jobs for good. I couldn't handle a job. 
I was completely homeless. None of my friends wanted anything to do with me. You know, I'd, I'd earned all of the lack of trust and willingness to help that, that I was getting. And trust me, I was getting, I was getting no help and no trust and I earned it all. So I don't feel sorry for myself, but you know, then my, that car got repossessed and I was like, fuck. So now I really had no place to live. So, you know, in 2015, um, can't keep a job. Um, homeless in Los Angeles, Venice beach, Santa Monica, and, uh, just running the fucking streets, running amok, doing what I can, you know, sleeping in carports. Um, I'm, I'm sneaking onto people's patios, stealing the cushions from their patio furniture. And then I would go find a little cut somewhere to sleep in. Now I'm getting arrested a lot <clears throat> for random things. 5150. <laughs> if you know what that is, that means psych ward. That means you're going in for some health evaluation. That means it's a 72 hour hold. Uh, the first time I got 5150 was actually in San Diego and my friends were trying to do an intervention and, uh, they, like, I, I was in, I lived in San Diego, but I was in Los Angeles one time and I was just on a bender <clears throat> and anxiety was a big part of my, uh, my story from like the mid thirties on anxiety. I never really knew what anxiety was until it just slapped me in the fucking face. And I was just like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, Oh my God, this is anxiety. I can't move. It dominated me. I, I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to leave my car. Sometimes when I would get somewhere. I didn't want to get out. I would call and sick to work in the parking lot you know, bullshit, like, oh my God, I'm fucking the car accident, this, that, you know, whatever the fucking lies. The anxiety started hitting me in my early thirties. And I was just like, fuck man. And, uh, one time I was in Los Angeles, I was just on a bender and I was trying to go back home, but I couldn't, I literally couldn't fucking drive. I was just like, oh my God, ran into Vons and I grabbed just a bunch of, of the bottles of like, you know, plastic vodka, the, the 9.99 bottles of plastic vodka. I got like six or seven of them. And I just got in my car and I was able to drive to like a Del Taco or Taco Bell, some parking lot. And I got in the backseat of my car and I was just fucking just chugged and chugged till I blacked out. And I'd wake up and I would chug and chug till I blacked out. And I'd only get out of my car and stare at that front seat, but I wouldn't be able to get into it because I was too anxious. I couldn't drive. I literally just couldn't fucking drive. It just gave me so much anxiety. I would only leave the car to go into the whatever restaurant it was, Taco Bell, whatever, to go to the restroom to get maybe some food if I could hold it down because I'm just vomiting everywhere and to get more mixtures to put with the vodka. And I was there for five days, man. I was there in the backseat of this fucking car in this parking lot for five fucking days because my anxiety was just, I, it was terrifying. And all I wanted to do was drink to the point where I got blacked out so I could pass out and be asleep. That's it. I didn't want to be awake. That's how I coped with anxiety is I just blacked out. So finally I answered my phone and it was, uh, it was my buddy, two of my friends in San Diego. And they came and picked me up. They're like, where are you? I'm like, I'm a fucking... LA they're like get your ass home man what the fuck are you doing I was like I can't drive and like they they drove out in a car and one of them got in my car and drove my car home with me and the other one drove obviously their car back and when I got back they were like all right man we're like we've been telling you this we, you fucking you need help and I was like what and they're like you're going to this we're taking you to the county of whatever to a, a psych ward you're either gonna come with us or we're fucking we're calling an ambulance and you're gone because you can't do this and uh Man, psych words in 5150 is no fun. They just try to pump you full of meds. And like, I was like, I'm not trading one addiction for another one. I was like, fuck that. No, I'm not doing any of your meds. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know, it's a big open room, like a psych ward. The one I was in is just this massive open room. And there's like 40 people on there. And they're fucking one guy's going cuckoo. Another person's throwing up, like punching the wall, banging heads. And you're just like, what the fuck? You know, they give you a blanket. There's no beds. You don't have anywhere to sleep. So I'm just like, what? Yeah. You try to sit down. I'm like, I can't. So I didn't sleep for three days. Finally left that. My friends had to come get me out of there and then, you know, straight back to the bottle. So, you know, right before I finally got rehab, I was just 5150. I'm going crazy. I was, I was staying in a friend's house in South Central LA. This is a crazy story that I love to tell because I can laugh now about it. But um, 
Standard Friends House in South Central LA. And if you don't know South Central, it's not a nice neighborhood in Los Angeles. But finally, I mean, they were just like, Jim, get the fuck out of here. We're trying to help you, but you can't even help yourself. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, you, we go to work and we know you're just drinking the whole fucking day. We know, like, and I was, I would just drink the whole time they weren't there. And like, we're trying to help you, but you're not doing shit. So get the fuck out. And so I left and it was like a Thursday or Friday night. And I'm in South Central LA and I, I, I leave and I'm wasted and I'm walking around and like, I'm just getting in fights with people. I'm like, yelling at people that are on their patio, on their porches, they're hanging out, banging, drinking, whatever. I'm like, hey, can I get a drink? They're like, fuck you. And I'm like, fuck you. So they're chasing me. I'm fighting. Yeah, in South Central LA, that's uh, that's not a good way to go. <laughs> Jesus. I'm trying to make reason to anything a fucking addict does, man, Like especially when they're high or drunk. So I remember at one point I just jumped in a bush because I was like, fucking all these people were chasing me. So I jumped in this bush. And when they were gone, I called 911 on myself. I called 911. I was like, dude, I fucking need help. Like, I'm about to die. Like, fucking what? And so I hang up. Come out, a couple minutes later, my, my phone rings and it's dispatched. And they're like, where are you? I'm like, I'm right here. They're like, the cops are there. I'm like, I'm on Normandy and 54th. They're like, yeah, the cops are there too. I'm like, I'm in a fucking bush. Come find me. I'm hiding. <laughs> so anyways, I get out of the bush and the cops come to me and they fucking put me in a straitjacket, man. They throw me right in the fucking straitjacket. Put me in the back of the car and take me to uh, another psych ward for another 72-hour holding evaluation. Yeah, that thing, man. I'm in a little one of those little paper black jumpsuits they put you in, and they fucking give you bus tokens so you can get to wherever you're going. <laughs> and uh, went straight to the. I think I went straight to a friend's house to get some uh, some clothes, and they gave me some money. And I went straight to Ralph's or Vaughn's and got another couple bottles. And that's just how it was forever, man. I I I, I just. I could not, and trust me, I'm like at the point where I'm getting suicidal, you know, I'm at the point where I'm helpless, hopeless, don't know what the fuck's going on. I know that this is just insane, but I can't do anything about it. Only thing I can think about is when am I getting my next drink? You know, towards the end of your addiction, you know, you could be physically somewhere, but your mind is somewhere else. Like I may have been physically with you, but if we weren't drinking or using, all I was thinking about is the next time I'm going to drink or use or how am I going to yeah. get it? You know, and this is from my late twenties on, mind you. You know, if I'm heading home from work, I'm thinking, do I have enough at home to not only get me drunk tonight, but in the morning also, and so I can get to the store. You know, if I'm at work, I'm just thinking about when I get off my bar, are we going to? What am I doing? What, how am I going to drink? You know, I'm not alone in that. I think that's how we all function towards the end of our addiction. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's all it just consumed me, it just took my life over, it just dominated and controlled me. And so I ended up homeless. And then one day I went to my probation officer and I was just like, I finally was just defeated. Like I was suicidal. I just, thought nobody i didn't think anybody knew what i was going through anybody had ever been through what i was going through experiencing just the the body hurt you know the fuck like your body just hurts like sleeping outside yeah. i had slept in a bed and i don't fucking know how long like just always getting in fights homeless people trying to mug you and rob you you know i was sleeping under lifeguard stands in venice beach and it's just like you're just you're you're you're, you're just done mentally and physically just done and so I told my probation officer, I'm like, man, I need fucking help. I don't know what to do. I'm thinking she was just going to laugh at me and be like, go figure it out. But she turned me on to a place called Homeless Healthcare of LA. I went in there and um, this guy hooked me up with a, uh, he was like, all right, I'm going to work with you. And then he was able to get me a bed in a transitional rehab facility in Venice Beach called Phoenix House. And uh, when I say transitional rehab facility, it's, it's not definitely not one of your, uh, you know, your poshy rehab facilities that, you know, patches of Malibu where you go and you have a whole staff to tend to you and like, you know, you meditate and shit like that. No, fuck no. It's a place that has 53 guys in it. Most of them are coming straight out of prison because they'll go before the judge and the judge will be like, all right, serve two more years in prison or you can go do this program for six months because it was a live-in program. Like you couldn't leave. You stayed there. And the rest of the guys were straight off the streets of being homeless like me. 
you know, so in essence, you know, it was jail. It was everybody that would be in jail. You know, I was, had been in jail multiple times. The only time I'd ever been sober in my life from probably like 20 something on was my jail sense <laughs> when I was in jail. And yeah. trust me, you can drink in jail. It's there, but I just didn't. I never did because I was just like, yeah, I was, I, no, I just didn't drink in jail because I had to be too aware of what was going on. LA County is like, no joke. LA County is like prisons and across the, the nation. But so I'm in this rehab facility with 53 dudes that are just, you know, pretty much the same guys you're in jail or, or in prison with. And, um, but when I walked in there, I mean, I just told myself I surrendered for the first time in my life. You know, I've heard you ask people like, Hey, what was it with you that, 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 you know, what was the, the turning point with your life? I've heard you ask a couple of your guests that yeah, I do. for me, it was the point originally my story's relapse. So obviously everything I say right now, realize there's some relapses after it. But at this point, I really thought I was going to surrender and I was going to just live a sober life. For me, it was just being so helpless and hopeless. There was no fucking hope. Like you're done. Like there's nothing. Your life is over. You know, I'm 39 at this time. Uh, I went into rehab at 39 and I was just defeated. And so my, my, my humbleness, my humility somehow came out and I was just like, dude, you're obviously not doing anything. So it's so funny how, you know, your pride, even when you're homeless, I was proud. Fuck yeah, I can do what No, finally I got a little bit of humility in my life. And I went in this rehab facility and I said, if I'm giving this six months out of my life, I'm going to, I'm going to fucking do this. And, uh, there wasn't much rehab going on in that place. It was a government funded program. So the staff was really small, you know, at nighttime, there'd be 53 of us in there with one staff member, you know, it was an old, um, tiny hotel they'd converted into rehab facility had like 24 beds in it or 24 rooms so 53 guys do the math you're sharing rooms with, with dudes yeah. and uh there's just most of them are in there just as a, a you know one place to live until they get back to their you know between prison and getting back to the, the streets where they can bang and stuff like that so there wasn't much uh rehab going on in there but uh you know everything is what you what you make it you know, and if you want it good enough, you're going to do it. And they did have the counselors and they did have the stuff, the programs. We had to go to groups, you know, multiple times a day. So I just, you know, I, I just, I found, we found God in that place. I just told myself, Jim, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it. You know, I, I didn't get into all the bullshit that was going on there. You know, when you had free time, most guys were, you know, watching TV or playing dominoes, you know, the blacks are over here doing this. The Mexicans are over here doing this. The whites are over here. It was literally like jail. It was like all segregated and shit like that. So uh, I just, what I did in my free time there is I journaled like a motherfucker. I read and I worked out. That was it. There was a little tiny gym in the basement, three stories down. And if I could ever get down there, I would get down there. There was a little racket thing, but it worked. And, uh, you know, I started journaling. I found God again. I prayed. And so all my free time was not doing any of the nonsense. Like, that's the shit we can do when we're fucking in our active addiction. I was like, if I'm here, I'm going to do something different that's going to get me to where I want to be now. My counselors and the, and the people that came in for H&I panels to speak to us, you know, they have what I wanted. So if I had – if they had what I wanted, I was going to do whatever the fuck they told me to do. Anything a counselor told me to do, I did it. Anything these guys recommended, I did it. I was in the front row of all the meetings for, you know, H&I panel. If people don't know what they are. It's hospitals and institutions. Um, it's like, like an AA or NA meeting. So people will volunteer and they'll go run a little panel, uh, an AA panel, NA panel in a, in a hospital, a prison, a jail. You know, this was an institution, so they would come to us. And, man, I was in the front row just, just fucking just eating everything they said. You know, anything my staff said to me to do, I would just – I did it. I just didn't question shit. Cause guess what? I'm a fucking 40 year old homeless guy. You know, I'm not doing something right. And you guys are. So um, this place changed my life, man. It really did. I just, I really, I drank the water. I did everything that fucking said um, mental health counseling for the first time was what honestly saved my life. Like for the first time ever, I talked to somebody about the shit that happened to me when I was a kid. You know, we didn't have that many counselors in there. It was a government funded program. So, you know, the resources were small, but when you got to the point, 
uh, after like 60 days, if you were working the program right, then you were able to leave the building for a couple hours uh, a day, a week, at first a week, and then a couple hours a day, like to go to the library, go try to, uh, you know, go look for jobs, stuff like that. Because after three months, you were able to get a job. So you could save money. So when you got out, you could literally transition back into society because you're coming there in there with nothing. So transitional rehab facility means they try to, you know, teach you the tools to transition back into being a functional member of society because, you know, obviously if you're homeless, you've lost a lot of fucking skills and a lot of abilities to pay bills, to pay rent, to think normally. So, uh, you know, the last couple of months, they let you get a job. You can work a little bit every week and save up that money. So when you do get out, you can now hopefully get an apartment or whatever, whatever, whatever. And so I would go to other government agencies, buildings that would have counseling and I would just sign up and, you know, cause I was homeless and in this program, they would, you know, allow me to, to, listen to the to attend other groups and, and get other counseling and my first mental health counselor was this little black lady little the black lady precious little thing and i've never cried that hard before in my life and i'm talking about deep real crying like where you just you ugly cry like i don't, I don't know if crying's cute but where you ugly crying you just got snot bubbles coming out your nose and and man i'm a grown man for the first time in my life admitting the shit that happened to me that i just bottled up forever and i'm telling you nothing nothing felt better nothing yeah. ever felt better to me than to just to be honest about that stuff for the first time in my life. And it was just like, when I started doing that, I got addicted to fucking counseling. I got addicted to therapy. I got addicted to journaling. I got addicted to all the good things that would help me see the other side of the life that I had never seen. You know, our subconscious mind is so powerful. And for so long it held me captive and it just fucked me and just ruined me. But when you use it in the right way, when you do the right things, then your subconscious mind, you train it, to flip the page and now it's doing good things, man. I just got, it was just so powerful. You know, I was just this fucking mercenary guy. Like that was sober and thought everybody should be sober now. You know, you know I don't know if, if yeah. you talk about the pink cloud, you know, if I say pink cloud, you know what I'm talking about? I don't. Okay. Pink cloud. Some people don't, but in recovery, it's like, um, for me, it's after like two, three months into recovery, you just get this euphoric sense. It just overtook your body. And it's like, the only thing I can compare it to is ecstasy. And I hate to, to I'm not glorifying that. No, no, it's like okay. yeah. my body would tingle and like, I would just felt so good. Like I was just so in touch with so many things that when I bring it the pink cloud, people are like, yeah, if they know what it is, but yeah. it's just something that, that, you know, I heard a lot. And then when I, when I speak, I, I bring it up and people just, it's a big smile. And it doesn't last that long. It lasts like maybe a month, two months. But that pink cloud hit me, man. I was just like, fuck, I need this every day. I, it was like ecstasy, but it was free. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm soaking it all in. It was just the most amazing feeling. It's like you're just so much clarity because, you know, once you start racking up days in sobriety, you know, things just start to make sense. You know, you just get that clarity, feel good. Because that early time in sobriety is no fun. Those first couple of weeks are just like fucking shoot me in the face, you know, your body. But live in your truth where you recognize that you do have addictions, that you do have struggles, that you do have issues that need to be dealt with. And then when you finally deal with them and, and, and fight them with the same vigor that you would chasing the bottle or for me, Coke or whatever the hell it was, it, things do flip and in a very good way. And you embrace that positive and use your addiction against itself to be addicted to the positive things. And I am not saying or suggesting that addiction to anything is good if it's compulsive. But what I am saying is that that same 
motion that got me addicted, I used against itself and it, it helped me kind of find my path. But the main thread, the main thing was admitting my truth and in, in who I really was and some of the struggles that I had to deal with. And by burying them, it didn't do me any damn good at all. It forced me to drink to cocaine and smoke cigarettes and be a piece of shit, really. I mean, not, I mean, I, I really was, man. I mean, I, I can't believe um, that my wife and my kids stuck around because I didn't deserve them, to be honest, dude. And it's, and I'm lucky in that. And, and it's, and I love, so the pink cloud, and I'm sorry that I've never heard that before, um, is it, that makes perfect sense to me, uh, that I get that you get that euphoric feeling of accomplishment of success. And, and then you want to spread, you, you want to evangelize it in a way and, and get everybody to be there with you. And, and I, I totally get that, man. It was, it was as much of a body feeling as it was a mind feeling. I'm telling you, my body would literally tingle and it was like, oh my God. And it was, yeah, it, it's amazing. Um. <laughs> you probably felt it. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe everybody doesn't. I really don't know. Some people have no idea what I'm talking about. Some people are just like, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. But no, and you know, and you're talking about addiction in any, any way is not good. Like you, you know, you were saying about if you get addicted to recovery and, and rehab or whatever counseling, like I was, but you know, I think a lot of that is in the conscious mind, what you can get in your conscious mind, even your conscious mind. And you're aware of these things. Like just because you, you love it. I mean, you know, totally get that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so that, that's what I mean. Around that word addiction, like, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's a conscious effort <clears throat> towards the betterment of yourself or others, that's, that's fine. I, I'm, what I'm saying is you can't replace one addiction. Yeah, for another, yeah, yeah. And I don't mean in any way that you've done that. That's not what I'm saying. I, all I'm saying is a lot of people haven't, by not dealing with the real issues, the root problems, they just replace addictions. And and that's not what you're saying, but I just, uh, but I, I totally get that, man. And, but I love it, man. If you're aware in dealing with the issues and working through the problems to get and stay recovered, that's a wonderful, magical thing. And I, this is a great, I love your story, man, because I'm getting the chills because I can just picture the depth of struggle that you had to go through, man. It's crazy. You know, we all, we all do that. We all, we all have things that are just as, is difficult to us. So, you know, this is just my story, but you know, my story does, I, I mentioned earlier, does deal with a little bit of relapse. So, you know, I got out of that program and I went into a sober living for a couple months because my counselor just recommend like to just slowly still transition yourself back into society, you know, because honestly, like when I first was able to get out of that, um, and the facility I was in for six months, like you're locked in this building with 53 guys, man, that are just not trying to do the right thing. You're locked in a small fucking building. They are on my fucking nerves. There's fights, there's drugs, there's alcohol, like, it's just like, man, you put 53 guys coming with the background we have, you know, in a fucking small building for six months, three months before we can even go outside, you're going to fucking, you're going to wear on one another's nerves. So, but, you know, that's all. So that was all I was around now for the first two months of my life. And then we get to the point where I can leave and I'm able to get out for a little bit, go to, you know, the library or whatever. I'd go to coffee shops and anxiety was a part of my early recovery also. You know, I go to a coffee shop and I would see people just living their normal day lives. And that was terrifying to me, like even to be able to converse with them, like talk with them. Like I would see people over here, you know, drinking their lattes and eating their bagels or whatnot with their laptops open, just doing everything that they take for granted because it's just them normal. But to me, that's terrifying. And just being able to interact with them and talk to them was, you know, would raise my anxiety. And it was like, but then, you know, the thing I, I talk to people when I'm talking about early recovery is it's so much going on, but just feel it. And, and just go through it because you can't, you know, what I speak when I speak is you might be able to learn how to read faster than me or ride a bike faster than me or learn a foreign language faster than me, but you can't learn 30 days sober faster than me. You have to put it in the 30 days. 
Yeah. Your body has to feel that. You can't learn 90 days sober faster. I mean, you cannot learn so the physical part of sobriety. You might be able to read a book and fucking quote me all this bullshit, which not yeah. bullshit, it might be real, but you really literally have to go through it. You have to feel it. You have to experience it. You can't learn the, how your body transforms out of it faster than anybody else. So, you know, yeah. I mean, recovery is a great equalizer for sure. Like there's right. no shortcuts. There's no hacks. You got to put the fucking time in and you've got to keep putting the time in there. You can't, there's, there's no difference between anybody in recovery and that it, because it's such a great equalizer, we can have, we can all help one another, which is a benefit of it, but there, there are no shortcuts or hacks. I see some people from time to time promoting certain hacks or shortcuts to get through this shit. And there isn't any, I mean, that's so spoiler alert. There is no shortcut. You just have to put the fucking time in. End of story. Period. Yeah. And when I tell people, man, I'm like, if you really want it, feel it. Like what you're going through, the pain, the fucking anxiety, the mental anguish, feel it and remember it because you're healing. Like with all this stuff, you know, when you talk about the shit you, that happened to you as a, when I talked about the stuff that happened to me as a kid, you know, being able to talk about is how you heal. You peel that wound open, man. You just feel it. You dig in there. You really have to be honest with yourself. But then as it heals, it's just like working out. You know, when you work out, technically you, you tear your muscle and only in that muscle healing and with time, does that muscle grow and get stronger? And that's the same thing. I correlate that with recovery a lot. You know, with recovery, you really have to open up old wounds and talk about shit that happened to you. And only when you, those wounds mend, do you get stronger and do you grow as, you know, this new person, you know, sober, hopefully. But, um, you know, one thing, another thing, many things recovery taught me, but it's, it's a lot of humility. You know, when I was at 60 days, I thought I had a pretty good grasp on it. You know, I thought, oh, you know, I got this recovery thing. I got this sober thing. But then I would get to, you know, 90 days and I would laugh at myself at 60 days. Ah, you didn't know shit. But you know what? I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And I was, you know, I was doing the program. I was working the program. And with time, you learn more. And so at a year, I laughed at myself in 90 days because at 90 days, I'm like, ah, oh, you didn't know shit in 60 days. You thought you had it, but no. And so now, you know, I'm at, I'm back to uh, 20 months, but now it's like, I, I know I have so much more to learn. I look at people that have five years, 10 years, and I just shut up and I fucking listen because just like a 12 year old, you know, just regular kid, you know, they think they know everything, but we at our age now know they don't do shit, but they know they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, but they're going to learn and learn more stuff. So, you know, it just makes me so excited to further on my development and recovery and just learn more and grow and experience stuff and know that right now, like I'm doing great. I'm exactly what I'm supposed to be, but guess what? I have so much more to learn and I'm super excited about it. So, you know, my, my first time in recovery, when I first got out of rehab, I got to almost a year and I worked in a restaurant bar, which I still do, which is ironic. I'm a, a sober bartender. COVID, COVID in LA, all that shit closed down. But, um, but I was at this restaurant bar, man. I thought everybody should be sober. And I was like, you should be sober. You should be sober. Because it had done so much for me. I wanted people to have the joy and the happiness I had. And I really thought, you know, I was like that evangelistic person going door to door trying to convert everybody to their religion. I thought everybody should be sober. So, you know, people joked with me. Uh, normies would joke with me like, like, dude, you're fucking nuts. Like, you need to fucking – you probably need to relapse or maybe you need a drink. And, and I'm, I, I'm here today to talk to you so I, I can kind of laugh at that. But after I relapsed, I realized I really didn't need that fucking relapse. You know, I don't like to joke about relapse because relapse is not a joke. No, of course won't come back from it. I've, I've lost many friends to relapse, so I don't like to joke about it at all. But now that I'm still here today talking about it, I think my relapse really did open my eyes to a lot of things and, and balance me out a little bit. You know, my relapse was about, I would relapse and get back to three months, relapse, get back to six months, you know, 
the first time I got sober, I really honestly thought I was done. But then the next couple of times I knew I wasn't, I knew I was going to drink again. I was a dry drunk. You know, I wasn't working a program. I wasn't doing it. AA is not for everybody. I understand that. AA wasn't the early part of my uh, recovery. Uh, it is now. Um, still haven't worked the steps. So, you know, step was terrifying. And, you know, I, I don't, I know I want to do that, but, you know, AA is not for everybody, but AA was that for me. But when I first got um, sober, I thought I was going to be, live this lifestyle forever. Then I relapsed. And when I was in my relapses, I still knew, even though I got to three months sober, six months sober, I knew I wasn't done. I knew I still had another run in me. And uh, then I think my last relapse, it was just, it was one of those things, you know, once you, once you've overcome this, once you've gotten sober once, you know, the pain your body goes through when you do that. Those first seven days, that first two weeks, you know, I think that's a lot to do with once you've relapsed, like, man, it's like, is, is it, do I, am I willing to, to, endure that pain again because you know for me me a relapse isn't i just went out drinking for one night me is i'm turned into a 24-hour drinker again i'm isolating myself in my fucking bedroom i'm not going to work i'm getting fired from jobs i'm getting evicted from my apartments like i'm that drunk i'm the guy that only leaves the house to go to cbs to get more booze and then i'm locking myself in my room i'm not even social drinking maybe for the first week or so i was social drinking thinking i had it and then boom it just got me now i'm just like balls to the wall so you know when yeah. i finally able to get sober you know the last time it was i was i was on the floor of my bedroom for two days you know i'm the guy the first time i ever stopped drinking i was in the hospital because i was having seizures i'm hooked up to that machine for eight straight days to keep me alive with a 24-hour nurse that can't leave my side in case i go into seizure again you know i was that guy you know alcohol and heroin can kill you coming off of it i was a person I, I friends had taken me to the, to the emergency room at UCLA Medical Center and thrown me in there and be like, dude, this guy's about to die. And I'm in the fucking lobby of the of the ER having seizures. They fucking rushed me, hooked me up to a machine, you know, feed me IVs to keep me hydrated. And I'm that dude. That's where addiction took me. And so the last time I relapsed, you know, the last time I was getting over it, I was just like, man, I'm laying on my floor. I'm throwing up all over myself. You can't hold down water. You know, you get to the point where you can't, you can't drink water. You know, usually you can drink vodka or whatever your drink of choice is. And that'll, you know, take your shakes away so you can actually hold a cup or something or you can actually walk. But no, I couldn't do anything. I would drink vodka and just throw it up. Water, throw it up. I'm throwing up bile. I'm throwing up blood. I'm throwing up, you know, just intestines. It's just, I'm just laying there. I'm like, this is how I'm going to die. And I know going into that, like, if I'm really going to do this, I'm going to be in the worst physical pain of my life for not only a week, probably two weeks. So that's what's terrifying. I think once you relapse, once and you don't, once you've overcome it or gone through the recovery process and gotten sober, you know that pain. So it's as much a mental game as it is a physical game. So, listen, I follow you on Instagram. Uh, I love your posts, and I love I love your apparel line and your fitness line around it. Rather, your apparel fitness line. Excuse me. I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about what life is like now for you um, after all of the hard work that you've put in and, and all of the challenges you've had to get here. Um, I was wondering if we could spend just a few minutes uh, talking about what, what life is like today with your Sober AF clothesline, with your ValorFitnessClothing.com uh, for the website. And I, I, I love that stuff, man. And, and what I love about it is you live by example now, which I think is badass. When I left rehab, you know, I got help from people that you know didn't necessarily have to help me a lot of times. And I, and, and I, and I realized that, and you know, this program saved my life. And so when I got sober, I realized like I, my gratitude level was just at, off the charts. So um, I've always worked out. And I think, uh, you know, physical fitness is a huge part of any form of recovery. If you're in recovery for me, what it originally did is it gave myself worth back. It gave me my self-esteem back. It gave me my, you know, working the program 
you know, journaling, all the, the work you need to do gave me a lot of that. But physical fitness really, you know, helped with the mind, body, soul part of it. You know, mind, body, soul is three aspects. So, you know, I'm working on all those and you put that together and a beautiful miracle can happen. So, you know, I wanted, I wanted, I'm like, how can I help others? And I was like, you know, I love working out. I love, so I, in rehab, I just dreamed up, like, I'm going to start a fitness clothing line dedicated to helping people in recovery. I, I saved up a little bit of money. And I, I just, I had no idea what I'm doing. Anyways, I, I started a fitness clothing line called Valor Fitness Clothing. First couple of years, did absolutely nothing. Now it's starting to, to kind of take off, not really. Uh, I started a sober AF line for people in recovery because, you know, I, I, I want to help anybody trying to recover from any kind of addiction. So I go to homeless shelters often and I talk to them. I donate clothes. I go to my old rehab facility once a month and I go in there and I spend four or five hours a night with the guys and I always bring clothes for every single person, give it to them. I share my experience, strength and hope. You know, I go to Skid Row and, you know, I feed the homeless people. I pass out shirts. I've done that a dozen times. You know, I, I, I give back because that's what we do in recovery. You give back. You know, you give what was so freely given to you. And that's easy to say, but it's not as easy to do sometimes. And, you know, simply just sharing your story is going to help a lot of people. So that's awesome. By sharing your story, you're really, you know, you might think you can affect one person. But with me, I want everybody to have what I have now, which is just, just joy and just love for life. And I think recovery and physical fitness are so tied together. They can really aid one another so greatly that, you know, that's why I started it. So, you know, I really, I really try to walk the walk. You know, I was given so much help in early recovery. So now I want to help out others. And so I'm always, you know, homeless shelters, uh, uh, sober livings. You know, I put people in recovery in my photo shoots as often as possible. You know, I go to the old rehab center and, and because they know me so well now, they'll allow me to take some people and put them in a photo shoot. And it just makes them feel so good about themselves, you know. So them, you know, not only for them, but then the, the other people in the, in, the, in the rehab centers or the sober living see that. And they're like, oh, my God, like, oh. And it inspires them. So, you know, inspiring people. But, you know, my, my fitness clothing line is just about really helping out and motivating and, you know, just helping people in recovery to use physical fitness as a great form, a great tool in helping them. So that's why I started it. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm blessed. Uh, many people have told me, you know, if you're not making a lot of money after some two years, it's just a hobby. But guess what? This hobby's kept me sober many times. Yeah, dude. Anybody that says that's full of this fucking asshole, like that's bullshit. Business wise, like it's true. Supposedly, if you if you start a business and you're not really doing really well, maybe after like two years, then it might just be a hobby. And trust me, I haven't profited one penny from this thing. My motto is: I donate one item of clothing for every item sold. The reality is, I've donated probably eight thousand items of clothing to shelters and and Skid Row, and I've sold maybe two thousand. So, but that's not why I did it. And even if I am losing money every month. Rehabs are expensive as fuck. <laughs> and so yeah. business has honestly kept me sober. Many times I've like, you know, had a bad day, a bad week, and I'm like, fuck it, I'm just gonna drink. And I'm like, you're just gonna let too many people down if you do that. You have a, a clothing line dedicated to inspiring addicts and in recovery. You can't do that. So the accountability for me is anything. So it's priceless. Even if I'm not making a profit, which I'm not, I hope to will, and I really genuinely think I will eventually, but this is accountability for me. It motivates me, it inspires me, and it keeps me sober. So for me, that's that's priceless. And I help other people. Are you kidding me? I get to help other people also. You know, I see my clothing line now in Paris and in Australia and Finland and Canada. People all over the world are buying it. Not a lot, but it is. You know, and I yeah, see dude. people wearing it and they're honored, you know, because people in recovery, you know, it takes a lot to get trust from people in recovery, you know, because we're skeptical people because we've lied, cheated, and stole our whole lives. So you're not doing that to me now. But, you know, once right. we realize people in recovery are proud, you know, we're proud. You know, we love our lives. We know what we did to get to where we're at right now to simply be alive. Like you've said it, like you're shocked that you're still alive. You know, I'm shocked that we're still alive. 
So if we're still alive after we've come together, like let's unite, let's help other people. And so that's what it's like, you know, people are, are proud to wear this and it makes me just fucking honored and proud to, to be part of that. And so, yeah. I have really enjoyed having you on the show, brother. And, and this has been fucking great, Jim. And so uh, two quick things just to close. Everyone listening, please check out, and I'm going to just, I'm going to read again the URL to make sure I get it accurate here. ValorFitnessClothing.com. I will have links in the show notes. I will have links on the website. I'll have links anywhere and everywhere you listen to the Dismantle Life podcast. Also, I have to say, I got to give some shout outs to your, your kick ass Instagram, man. It's J H E R 76. Uh, super cool, man. There are a lot of cool ones. Now check out, I'm just going to end with this really cool post. Uh, I love the picture of the wave with the bioluminescence. There's lots of great pics and, and amazing ones are on sobriety and you helping people in your clothing line. But that one with the bioluminescence, big, big fan, man. Um, everything you've done is super cool, dude. I'm, I, I'm so glad to know you and I am going to be buying some sober as fuck gear because I dig it. Appreciate that, man. It's, it was an honor to be on here. It really is. I love talking. I can talk to everybody every day, all day, every day. You know, I just took up an hour of your time and I just rambled. So <laughs> just no, and I love every second of it, dude. And I'm going to have you back, bro. I, I am. And what I'd like to do is because I'm going to be building out different types of bonus episodes around things. Cause I too, like you believe that I'm a somatic healer. Like I, I just started walking and biking and boxing and, and digging into my, my, the physical aspect of recovery before I could get to the mental, the spiritual and the emotional component of recovery. I had to start with my body and I did that and I still do that. And it's a huge piece of my life. Every single day I box every day and, and I love it, man. And I'd love to have you back on to talk about how you do that with, with, uh, fitness because I really believe that it's a huge piece man I don't care what recovery you're going through whatever you're recovering from I think that including the body is such a big big component and one that will pay lots of dividends uh, in the long run sure you know, I've heard you talk multiple times like your routine is every day you have to either walk, walk about walking you know or get yeah. boxing in and it's like or else your day is just something's missing you know that's right. It's true. Routine for us in recovery is super important, you know, plan and having a routine. Like one thing we never had in active addiction or very rarely was a, a routine or a structure. You know, we need structure now. So definitely, man, no doubt. 